All right, if you'd like to open your Bibles, we're looking at Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 to 13. So once again, that's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection or sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being formed in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of of the cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We have uh, completed our series on John, and I thought it would be appropriate as we enter this uh, season to look at some of the great passages to do with the coming of Christ and the incarnation. And uh, so I've begun with this passage this week, which uh, is a very difficult passage to do justice to. It's one of those crucial passages that we've really got to know how to drive ourselves. Uh, there is so much here, it's, it's very difficult to do justice. Uh, just hearing that read by Daniel then, you can see the, the, uh, the, the, the balance and the poetry that is at work in Paul's deliberate construction of this passage. If he, if he goes to so much effort in a letter to this church... Uh, it's because it's very critical to them. I thought also that today, uh, to really get you excited, we'd have a Greek lesson. And all God's people said, oh, goody. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, it's, it's also important to look at this passage in the, the original language, which doesn't quite show through in our English text, which has ironed out some of the the deliberate stresses that Paul has, has, has made by the use of certain tenses and, and certain key words uh, that uh, I would like to show you as we look through this. It's not going to be hard, it's not going to be, but it will be audience participation. <laughs> um, so uh, I, follow, I encourage you to follow along as, as we look at this. So this is really looking at Christmas but it's, it's a cosmic view of Christian Christmas. Standing back, it's like the balcony view, looking down on the whole Christ event from the broadest perspective. And into that we, we step now. The context is that Paul is writing to this, this church, which he has a fondness for, 
you can read about its formation in, in the second missionary journey in the book of Acts when Philippi meets the gospel. And uh, Philippi was significant because it's the first Roman colony that the gospel had taken root within. And uh, the, the Roman, it was a, quite a proud Roman colony too, the, the colony of Philippi. They prided themselves uh, because many uh, military uh, officials would retire there and would be apportioned land and buildings and and uh, there was a lot at stake to retire to Philippi. Uh, people tended to prefer to speak Latin in Philippi. They were true Romans. And they spoke and they, they read the philosophers, they were high-born. And uh, with that, there's also a lot of rivalry. If there is anything that's characteristic of the Roman mindset, it's, it's comparison, ranking. Romans ranked each other and uh, the whole structure of society was built on rank and the whole goal of life was to end life at a higher rank than what you had inherited or been ascribed to you by your parents. You'd aim to get up the ladder in Rome and uh, that was very much part and parcel of good, normal, decent thinking. That's how life was and that's the purpose. And the trouble is that that sort of thinking doesn't necessarily get converted out of people instantaneously when they accept Christ. They sort of take the thinking into the church. And that's has happened with, uh, with Paul in the previous chapter in, in Philippians. He is in prison, probably in Rome itself, under house arrest. You can read about that at the end of the book of Acts. And, and there, while he is away, the, the mice are at play. And there are people who are trying to get one over on Paul and take away his popularity to themselves. And Paul is able to just brush that off and say, well, as long as the gospel's preached, um, that's okay. <laughs> you know. But then he says in this passage, in verses 1 to 4, basically he says, look, let's not do things from that motive, that Roman motive of selfish ambition. Let's be countercultural. And he's basically saying, look, while I'm here, if there's any news you can bring me, I don't really need to know how many people have been baptised or you know, how big is the church. What I'd really like, if you really want to know how to cheer me up, tell me about how you get on. That's what he's saying. That you get on together like you were one mind. And that you actually consider others more significant than yourselves. Now that's asking for a psychological revolution as far as a Roman goes. It's actually asking for a psychological revolution as far as we go. It comes as second nature to us to think that we deserve to be treated well and that life should dish us up a normal decent amount of significance but uh, Paul says I want you if you really want to cheer me up to tell me stories of how insignificant you've been for the sake of others significance that's the sort of thing I want to hear and he starts to string a whole lot of commands together in the first four verses and then he thinks you know Instead of more instructions, a picture is worth a thousand words. And so he says, think like Jesus. 
Have you ever thought of what it was like from Jesus' side of the spectacles? What it was like for Jesus to be a man? Think on that, you can't go far wrong. So that's what he's saying here. Let's look closely at what it was for Jesus to become the servant of God. And uh, down the bottom of the notes, there are notes in the care link. I always forget to say that. You'll, you'll notice that I've actually laid out this central text. And it's not because I'm a shocking typist and I don't know how to use the return key, uh, that it's all offset. But if you look at it, I've actually made sure that the main verbs, the doing words, here comes the grammar lesson, the doing words are in the left-hand side. Oh, it's not there, not to worry. You can imagine it's there. <laughs> and, uh, and it was probably going to be a distraction anyway. So, <laughs> so um, forget that. Okay, so here we have it. The... Um, the, the, there are three things that I'd like to leave with us today that are descriptive of this mindset, this godly mindset. So if God becomes a man, this is how he would do it, how he would think about it. And this is what we are to make our own pattern. You notice you'll see there are three verbs here. And each of these is then qualified with some other subsidiary clause to give it colour. He says, have this mind or think this way among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he'll come back to this point. This is the gift of Christ Jesus for us that we might have a new mind. We might think differently. Who? Now these next verses that begin with that word who, verses 6 down to 11, the commentators, and they would know, <laughs> uh, believe that this was a, one of the early Christian hymns. And when you read it in the original language, it's got a certain metre and there are word patterns there. And this is a hymn of praise of the first church. I think that's wonderful that we can see the sort of things that Ray, Ray, they sung about. And uh, before we go much further, it's just critical to, to realise that the, the formative nature of hymnology through the ages is how the people of God have been formed. What we sing is how we think. Pretty important that we sing well if we're going to do well. Um, don't get me started on that. <laughs> but Paul says, um, "'Have this mind amongst yourselves "'which was in yours in Christ Jesus,' who, though he was in the form of God, here's the first thing he did. He did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. The first word I want to point out there is that little word translated form. It's a Greek word, morphe. Can I hear you repeat that word? What does that sound like to you in our language? Sounds like the word we use, morph. It sounds like something which is just outward, changeable. But actually, the Greek word is a philosophical word which meant exactly the opposite. It meant what was essential and unchangeable to the person. So when Paul says, although he existed in the morphe of God, 
It was saying that Jesus ticked all the boxes that you need to tick if you are to be God. If there's anything you're going to say about God that is essential and you lose one of them and you're not talking about God, any of those essentials you have to ascribe to Jesus. This is a tough one for those who have a low view of Christ, whether Jehovah's Witness or liberal theologian. Paul and the New Testament ascribes exactly the same qualitative distinctions to Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, who existed in the very essence of God, is how it should be translated. Every essential quality, all substantially Jesus was God in every essential way. I cannot stress that too much. Although he was in essence God, he did not count equality with God as something to greedily grasp onto. This is one of those really difficult phrases to translate directly into English. It doesn't work word to word. And we, we've got to understand it in, in terms of the, the gist of what he's saying. When Paul is saying he did not greedily grasp onto this fact that he was God. It is not saying that it was something he aspired to. It was something that he actually had. Now, when, when my kids were little, we had a particular grandmother who would come and visit. I think she had shares in dentistry. Because every time she visited our kids, she'd come with a 10-cent bag of lollies to them. She didn't pay the Medicare bill. We did. But she would, before you could say Jack Robinson, she'd have these to my two kids at this stage, two little, wee little tackers. She'd whip out these lolly bags and they would take them. Now, my son, Josh, is of a different mind to my daughter, Libby. Libby is, in those days, the archetypical mother saint. Josh, well, Josh. Uh, <laughs> It was just amazing that after every visit, within five minutes, Josh would have both lolly bags in his little fists. And I don't know how he did it, but he would put such pressure on Libby or he would threaten to scream the house down and he'd end with both little lolly bags. And one day uh, I, I was a little bit fed up with this, so I got down to Josh and I tried to prise his fingers off one of those lolly bags. And if you're wondering why I'm deaf in one ear, that's the moment <laughs> when he let out this holler that, you know, he was greedily grasping on to what he already had and he wasn't going to let it go. But that's not how Jesus is with what is truly his, his essential godliness. He was willing to let go of something which he actually had as his dessert just dessert that is his honour and his glory as God that is where our, our image of true holiness begins is that we are people who don't hold our rights tightly it's very difficult to begin the Christian walk while you're gripping hold of the lolly bag you can't go through life thinking, I deserve better than this, and serve Christ. To be a servant of Christ, to be like Christ, to think like God, 
is firstly to think as Jesus did before he even stepped into the world. I can be loose with my rights. I don't have to get the recognition that I'm due. It's very difficult to be a Roman mind and serve Christ. God is neither a Roman nor a narcissistic toddler. He can let go of what is truly his desert. That's the prerequisite of ministry. So this God is in the what the the essence of God is the what's the word morphe. Don't forget that. And it doesn't mean form; it means essence, essential qualities. And then it says the second main verb is in the next verse. He, though he was in the form of God, he didn't quite equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. There are three things here that qualify this emptying. And in ages past, people have made too much of this word. You notice that Jesus emptied himself. It's an act of just self-emptying. It's not something that was forced on him. It doesn't mean that he ceases to be God. He empties himself by taking a form. In other words, by becoming truly a man, he constrains his glorious capacities, those incommunicable attributes, the omnis, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, are constrained by the humiliation of becoming limited as a man. And the word here is that he became, being in the likeness of a man, it's from another word, we won't go into it, but it's from where we get our word homologous as opposed to analogous. Jesus Christ is not just something like a man. In every way that a person lives, Jesus is born into that. And being in the next word, in the, the human, it says human form in my version, but that's not the word. It's not the word morphe. It's saying being in human scheme. So developmentally, everything that you've gone through to be the normal person that you are, that's an assumption, uh, you, Jesus went through it. And every gate that you had to negotiate from infancy through puberty, Jesus didn't skip any of those. And, and what Paul is saying is that when God becomes a man, he takes the form of a servant And guess what word is used for form? Morphe. You can see his point. Jesus does not come and live a charmed life or just live as if he has the appearance of a human life, but he just dashes onto the scene and dashes off. Now, he goes through all the developmental gates, even the birth gate, just like us, homologous, He has the same scheme, the same process. He lives in exactly the same context as we do. And what we experience, he experiences because he is every bit an essential servant, a morphe servant. His is not just a show of servanthood. I don't know about you, but I get a bit creeped out around Easter 
when on the news every Easter they'll show sometime around Easter Friday the Pope, uh, the, the head of the Catholic Church, and what does he do on Easter Friday every year, regardless of who the Pope is? Do you remember? Obviously not many Catholics here this morning. But <laughs> he, uh, he actually takes the shoes off the cardinals and washes their feet. Can you think of anything more gross to do on Good Friday? But anyway, he, he does that. <laughs> and he gets down and he washes them. What's, that, what's he parodying? It's Jesus in the last, last days. And he's saying, I'm just like Jesus. Now, that isn't servanthood. They can wash their own darn feet. They don't need him to do that. It's a show of servanthood. It's not real servanthood. If he really wanted to serve, he could cash in a couple of those Vatican bank accounts. Couldn't he? He could solve the poverty of an African country forever. That'd be service. Probably get him killed, but it'd be service. But this isn't service, it's just a display. But when Jesus came, he took the morphe of a servant. He was, you can tick any box, he was essentially a servant. It was second nature to him. You see, that is the difference between the Christian God and the God of Islam. Is that our God is great, but his idea of greatness is great service of getting down and doing what is beneath the Roman. What an incredible God. Aren't we fortunate that this is how God is essentially? He doesn't just put on a display of service. He really is like that in his inner being. So though he be outwardly truly human, born like a human and going through the context of human life, not missing any of the gates. He does that because he is truly a servant. It might strike some as difficult to get your head around that the infinite God could take locational form. That probably philosophically is the toughest issue to comprehend if you're an atheist. But if you begin with the premise that our God is essentially servanthood itself, the very epitome of humility, then it's not such a big leap to see that this God could step in to the constrained life of the creature when he is the creator. That's the sort of God we have. Aren't we lucky that he's like that? Otherwise, we'd be whistling in the dark he'd be up there we'd be down here but he's not and then the third main verb we read in that same verse being found in human form he humbled himself you know the last thing a Roman wants to be is humiliated but Jesus was willing because he is that servant sort of servant He could take humiliation if it meant obedience. And he humbled himself. No one made him do the cross. But he was so committed to meticulous obedience. The cross is not a story of a tragedy, of a weak man being overcome by city hall. 
That's not the sort of picture that we have here. It's not a testimony to evil. That's not the story of the gospel. It's not even a humiliation. It is a story of perfect obedience so he could be the perfect sacrifice. Christ is meticulous because that's the only sort of sacrifice that can take away the sins of the world. And that's the sort of gift of Christmas that the Father was looking for from the Son. That this one would be obedient to the end. And not just any end, but the ignominious end of a cross where its design is to humiliate totally the absolute powerless and the shame of a naked figure in front of the gawking eyes the voyeuristic eyes of this world. That's the sort of thing that Jesus accepted before he steps into this world. He knows that that's the end of the road. But because his servanthood is essential, morphe, pure, second nature, substantial, he accepts that lot if that will make the Father happy. And Paul is saying to his people, you've got to think like that? That's not second nature to me. I don't like humiliation. I like recognition. I don't like a life that ends pointlessly. I like to live a life of significance. But that's not the way of Jesus. And then we have these critical truths in verses 10 and 11. He says, 9 to 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, remember we used to sing that hymn, At the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There's some critical truths in that verse, as wonderful a hymn of triumph as this is. This is the giant reversal, that it's because Jesus never gets out of step with the very essence of God. God exalts him to the right hand of God. Do you see the two things that have happened here? We have a God who for the sake of glorifying God has taken on the cloak of humanity, has suffered the ignominy of not being recognised as that God and then being contemptibly treated and this one then is risen and ascends and lives forever in the adoration of the Father as a man. He takes our flesh into heaven. That's the sort of God we have. That he doesn't just say, well, I'm glad that's over. Get rid of that cloak. He goes to heaven proud of those scars on his hand. He doesn't get embarrassed about his story. That's the story, if you read in Revelation, that they sing about. They compulsively sing, this one is the Lamb of God. Don't get it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His idea of height is not our idea of height. 
I wonder if you've ever thought of what it would be like on that first day in heaven, the messianic banquet, when suddenly you've been transmuted into that realm. And I just let, your, let my imagination, if you can permit me the, the blasphemous sin of imagination, <laughs> just to, to picture that moment when you step into glory and the, the, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And there I'd imagine some great amphitheatre bigger than Etihad Stadium. And there we have it. And around this is a whole lot of round tables. And the saints of the ages are being shown to their seats because the banquet is about to start. Can you imagine that moment? And it's a wonderful feast and the wonderful beings there and everywhere, humans are being served by those we thought were greater, the angels. And they are to see one of them, you think, my goodness, if only I could have shown one of these to my neighbour in my life. And there they are and they're directing you through and, and they're saying, oh, Jeff, yes, we, we're expecting you. There we go. Uh, come this way. Your table's number 35,930B. <laughs> and over there. And there we go. And we're, we're walking with the angel. And I presume we're walking. And we come up. And, and I'm enjoying this new resurrected body. And, uh, and as we walk through, there are some of the martyrs of the Middle Ages. And there's, there's Martin Luther still arguing with Zwingli, those guys. And, there, and you pass by, and you go, this is amazing. Church history is panoramically around me. And there's, there's some of the modern-day martyrs, and, and they're up on high table. And you think, wow, there we go. And as you pass, there's a little card table over in the corner. And you say to the angel, what's that? And he says, oh, that, that's for Baptist Union to Victoria uh, superintendents. Uh, <laughs> We're not, we're not expecting many of those. But <laughs> uh, we, uh, we go past anyway and we come to our table. Finally we find it and there we're sitting down at, uh, at, at our table and, and we're, we're sitting there and, and, and uh, it's amazing and you can get whatever you like. And he says, uh, now, uh, sir, we have the wine list. Oh, oh, sorry, this is the Baptist table. Will that be cola or that uh, Grappella stuff? <laughs> uh, now, which will you have? And, and right then, there are voices coming over that the show is about to start and the house lights are dimming and the centre stage is being lit up. And we think, oh, look, look, we can deal with that later, you know. And there this angel with his, with his serviette over his arm and, and that he's saying, oh, that's okay. I know, I know, I know, know, the, know the boss and, you know, it's, it's okay. So what are you going to have for hors d'oeuvres? we do this? And he said, look, I really think we should do this later. You know, and everyone can hear you talking. And he says, no, it's fine, it's fine. And just then as he leans over to pour the carafe of beer, of uh, a cordial, the, the serviette falls off his hand and there you will see a hole going right through. That's the world we're heading towards. And what Paul is trying to get us to see is that we live in the upside-down world where it's all about significance. But this is true significance, servanthood. And that will be normal forever. So this world that we have now, this world we live in, is purely an apprenticeship for eternity. We've got to start getting used to thinking in that way now. And that's what a church is. 
a church isn't a collection of people who volunteer. It's a collection of people who, in essence, think like God. And that's why Paul finishes by saying, Therefore, my beloved, as you always obeyed, so now, not as only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's interesting that the Greek word work out is in the middle tense. It's not the active sense of work up your salvation because no one else is going to do it for you. And it's not in the passive sense of you're going to be saved and you'll have nothing to do with it. It's in the middle sense. You can do it because you're being worked on. He says, work out your salvation because God is working on you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Isn't that astonishing that you and you and you have God within you and little by little he's changing the terminals and he's putting the very appetites of Jesus Christ, his motivations, his perspective into my mind and your mind we're being worked on so let's work it out so that the world may look at you and say my goodness we've brushed up against eternity let's pray our Lord and our God we thank you for the privilege of being people who've been brought out of this world and this darkness. But Lord, not just legally, but substantially and essentially, we thank you that you're making us more and more ready for heaven, where things will be set right, where we will see true greatness and that servanthood is not abnormal, but is the actual way of glory. Take these things with us, Lord, we pray, and remind them of, uh, to us through this week. And we simply say, Lord, take our hearts, take our minds. We would like to be a lot more like Jesus than we are. We want this to be second nature. For your sake, because this is the way of glory, we pray. Amen.